the chant we did is a perfect example of paradoxes, isn't it? Emptiness, form. And there's a lot of paradoxes in practice, but I wanted to just talk about four today. The four are thoughts and stillness, effort and relaxed, the personal and the profound, and right now and forever. So thoughts and stillness. You probably noticed when you were sitting today, there were some thoughts. And there's also the space between the thoughts. You know, every thought you have, it comes out of something and it ends into something. And we often are so enamored with the thought itself that we don't see it. It arises out of nothing and it returns to nothing. It might be a very quick moment. But there is stillness there with every thought. And you and I could make all the noise in the world for as long as we lived, and guess what it returns to? Humans are making a lot of noise. And it's going to return to silence, isn't it? And all forms going to go back to emptiness. Eventually. This building is not going to be here. So we both know the existence of thoughts and forms and knowing their empty nature as well. Ramana Maharshi says, let what comes come, let what goes go, see what remains. And it's a really good practice for our own minds. You know, what's coming and going, almost like a revolving door, but what's the you that remains? before all your thoughts and your emotions. There's even a space in between emotions. Emotions arise and pass away into what? What is that? Get curious about what's your true nature. And that doesn't mean we negate thoughts or emotions. We don't try to push them away or cast them aside, but it's seeing this whole flow of you. That's both the form and the emptiness. One of my friends works with horses, and she's quite an expert horse person. And she said that there's what's called a herd space. So when you're working with horses, a really good horse person works with the space in between the horses. And there's actually a, it's called herd space, and there's a specific way of working with that space. And she was saying that the herd space is populated with intentions and feelings from all members of the herd, and everyone can access it. For horses, their awareness lives in the space between herd members, as much as their physical bodies. It's a shared information space. And she would say that to get one of her horses to move its right foot forward, she might move something 12 feet back in the herd space, and then the horse would move its right foot forward. But it takes a keen awareness of both objects and the emptiness around them. And we're doing that on the cushion. I heard a definition of mindfulness, that mindfulness is neither on the object or on the knowing, nor in between. That doesn't leave a lot. It's not on the object, it's not on the knowing, nor it's in between. So what is mindfulness? And mindfulness is a process. If I asked you to stand up right now, and just imagine you were standing, I said, okay, take a step 
towards yourself. <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> if I said, take a step away from yourself, what would you do? If I said, take a step towards love, away from love. Why? Because these things are a process. Self is a process. So paying attention to this, this, these forms, this emptiness, and this process. And then noise and quiet can be equal. Movement and stillness can be equal, and the mind's not making any divisions anymore. So the second paradox is effort and relaxed. On one hand, it's all dharma practice. We're practicing. We don't get any breaks. As the Dalai Lama said, you know, about time off, he said, Buddha time off? (laughs) Vacation? Buddha vacation? (laughs) So it's it's that sense we're always practicing, and we have 100% responsibility for how we use our life. If we wait for life to give us the right conditions, forget it. It's not going to give you the right conditions to wake up or to be your true nature. So it's this taking 100% responsibility, but at the same time, that incredible effort and focus being totally relaxed. And that's the paradox of practice. I've been listening to this man named Stephen Kotler, and he does research with athletes on flow you know, this thing called the zone that athletes get into, and he's trying to look at it for everyday people. And he found it's what encourages flow states in athletes is a combined thing of intensity and it's some kind of challenge, right? You're pushing yourself and then totally relaxed within that challenge, letting go almost to something greater that's not about you and your challenge, and yet at the same time you're focused. So it's an amazing combination. He said it's a sense of presence greater than yourself or greater than a feeling of balance itself. And when people are in these flow states, anything can happen. They can make 20 baskets in a row from impossible positions because they're in this one conscious presence. And he says, actually, what happens when we're in a state of flow is our prefrontal lobe disconnects. And we move into that space, that herd space, right? And they found that the prefrontal lobe is where our inner critic is. And when we've got no inner critic, we've got no sense of self. So prefrontal lobe, inner critic, sense of self, it all just stops. And then we're in this one thing. And part of his research, he showed that flow states help us move along the adult developmental phases more quickly. So if you're accessing flow through meditation or something that you do, you're actually exponentially increasing your knowledge, your adult development. So meditation's a good thing. 20 minutes of meditation a day for four weeks with therapy with veterans with PTSD, it stopped their PTSD because they were able to help them get into flow and presence. The third paradox is the personal and the profound. So we've got our human thing, we've got our conditioning, we've got our personal experiences, right? 
And then when we meditate, we're tapping into something that's bigger than all of that. Not to negate those, but to include them. So we're showing up for why we're here, and then this overarching purpose. Mother Teresa was asked about all her achievements, and she said, I do nothing. God does everything. You know, all these achievements, I do nothing, God does everything. And then this, a reporter asked her, how does she pray? And she said, I just listen. And then he said, well, what does God say? And she said, he just listens. <laughs> she so, just he or she, yes. So there's this sense that this meditation, prayer, whatever you want to call it, it's communion with just listening, this flow, putting aside your personal, connecting with something bigger than yourself. And it's really a process I find more and more after 35 years of practice, it's giving way. And there's less and less and less of you. The Buddha said when they asked him about his enlightenment, he said, I've gained absolutely nothing from perfect enlightenment. I've gained absolutely nothing. Why? Because it was not about him. And eventually when you give way to this herd space, nothing happened. It just is. You give way back to your unconditioned nature and then your face before you were born. You know, where are your anxieties going to be after you die? Whatever you were worried about in the sit today, where, where's it going to be if you die? Nowhere. Where are you going to be? Luckily, my teacher, who I really respect, he's seen and he says repeatedly that the drive to let go is stronger than the personal will. Letting go is a way more powerful force in the universe. I mean, look, this building's going to decay. Every thought you have is going to end. So letting go is a natural state in the world, and we'll keep doing it, even if you fight against it. So that's the good news. I want to say one more thing about the personal and the profound. And there's so many people that I meet that have trauma, depression, anxiety. And often what happens is there can be a shame that we're working with a lot of personal stuff and we can't just go to the profound. But to remember that's okay. If you're stuck with a lot of personal things, that's okay. And that's what you're working with on the cushion. Don't worry about it. Again, the natural impulse is this letting go. One of the biggest things that breaks my heart that I see with people with trauma is they have an essential story, and it might show up not the first time they're on the cushion, but it might show up on a three-month retreat, or it might show up five years into practice. Their story is... I am broken, and no one wants to admit it. I'm broken because my father hit me when I was a kid. I'm broken because my uncle molested me. I'm broken because nobody wanted to be my friend when I was in the fourth grade. 
And it's meeting with the rawness of this feeling really deep down inside many of us have that I'm broken. And that's such deep practice when you can meet that and rock by rock, brick by brick, dismantling that wall. I can't do the practice because I'm broken. I can't be fully enlightened. I can't be whatever, fill in the blank. I don't have a right to sit under the tree of life. You do. And it breaks my heart when people encounter this brokenness story, but don't stop there. The personal and the profound. Move through that personal. Go to the profound. Someone sent me a poem that one of their relatives wrote, and her name is Cora Brooks. And it's called Someone Asks You. Someone asks you how you are, and you wonder if they notice the slab of sorrows you've been given to balance on your head. You wonder if you should lie about it, if you should say anything at all. Appearing in public, you could try to be clever and poetic. You could say it is a piece of the shore, the shoulder of the sea once leaned against, or you could say it is one of the sections of one of the walls out of the narrow side of winter. You could say you are just trying it on for size, you have it on trial, or you only wear it when it's raining. The rest of the time you wear it for fun. Despite its bulk, it does not distract you from your purpose. You feel most exhilarated, most honored to be under its weight while treading water. The truth is, it's an honor, this slab of sorrows that we carry. It can be an honor. Your personal can be part of the profound. And lastly, there's the paradox of right now and forever. We're always only practicing in the present moment. You guys notice that? I haven't met anyone that can practice in the past or the future. (laughs) Maybe Deepama. Um, So it's a hologram. We're practicing in the present moment, but a lot of the great, in Hawaiian tradition, the kumus, they know the past and their present are this fluid thing. So everything that was and everything that will be here is in the present as you practice. So it's very magical if you can really start to intuit this. You can't know it from your head. It's too complicated. But we can intuit this holographic nature of life. And more and more, the internet is going to really show us. (laughs) We're going to touch the air, and it's going to go into a 3D image, and it's going to connect to everything. So get ready. So there's your mind, there's one mind, there's your consciousness, there's the collective consciousness. You're being breathed right now, we're all being breathed together. The breath of the Buddha and Jesus is here. The same moon they saw is here. You might be practicing and yet you're already free. You're being Buddha, becoming Buddha, already Buddha. Paradox. There's no cosmic finish line. It's forever. And that's where Christianity and Buddhism, you know, this eternity, it's, it's forever. Why not? 
if it's not about you, and it's practicing the Dharma in all your affairs, and when you go to the bathroom, the Dharma's there. <laughs> it's kind of fun to see, oh my God, it's here too. Enlightenment, <laughs> freedom, it's all here. And just in closing with the Zen, a Zen master said, you know, what's the benefit of a lifetime of practice? He said, it's an appropriate response. It's a response that takes into consideration your position, the sound of the siren out there, who's sitting in front of me, the herd space, and you. And if you're really into appropriate response, you can feel the past, the future, these kumus and white can feel all of this. And then you know that you bang your hand, or you move there, or you go help this person, or you say nothing, or you say everything. But you know. So in closing, there's a reading from the Talmud. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. <laughs> 